This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So figuring out the right investment strategy or fixed income strategy in this environment is very tricky. Here were some thoughts, though, on dealing with headline bingo. We kind of love this term. Uh, it's Peter Cheer. He's head of macro strategy at Academy Securities. He's on the phone from New Canaan, Connecticut. Uh, Peter, um, Jason and I have been talking about this uh, since we kicked off our broadcast today. Headline bingo. It really does feel that way. You're not quite sure what you're going to get. You do it right and you can figure out, you know, you can maybe make some money in this environment, but it's not easy. Um, tell us a little bit more about your thinking right right now. Yeah, I think it's been very tough because we've got multiple headlines coming through, whether it's trade-related, whether it's it's impeachment related, whether it's Brexit related, um, you know, there's just so many headlines. Many are, you know, kind of counterintuitive. And worst of all, I think, is sometimes the market seems to react. Sometimes the market doesn't. So I think it's a good time to kind of stick to first principles, kind of ignore some of the noise, and think where we're really going to be a month or two months down the road, and position that way. And the reality is, the markets have done a lot of, I think, what people expected in the past month. It's just been noisy how we got there. And so if you do look a couple months down the road, that takes us more or less to the end of 2019, Peter. And what does the world feel like in, in your best estimate? So I think we are going to see higher yields across the globe and kind of steeper curves. I think Japan was the first central bank to really push for steeper yield curves. I think across the board, those central banks are realizing these flatter inverted yield curves are not healthy. So we're going to see steeper yield curves. We're going to see a little bit more excitement about growth. So I think we're going to see the long end of yield curves go higher. So I think the 30-year bond is going to get to 250 or higher very soon. That's interesting. What could change that, though? You know, if we start back on the tariff wars, I think mm. that would be a problem. If Brexit maybe drags down, if Lagarde doesn't really deliver. But I think we're kind of poised that there's so much positioning that people are too bearish People have become way too comfortable that, hey, I need to own long-dated bonds because either yields are going lower or it's my best hedge against my equity portfolio. And I think that's going to turn out to be a big mistake. I think there's going to be enough momentum to keep the selling pressure going higher. And we've actually seen that in the past uh, month. You know, the 30-year bond's already 20 basis wider. Um, the 230s yield curve is 20 bips deeper. So we're seeing it occur. And I think that's just going to continue. What do you make, though? I want to go back to this concept of headline bingo. I mean, what does it mean when the market is so random about what matters and what doesn't matter? And it can change from day to day or week to week? You know, I think, um, you know, we want to keep a rational and really pay attention to what just occurred, what is important, how President Trump is going to react. I think that's been the biggest wild card people have had difficulty thinking about is, if something happens, how is the president going to react? And we've got to make sure that we're thinking about how does the president react, not how would we like him to react. And I think if you do that, we can stay pretty nimble. And right now he seems to want trade. That seems positive. He seems to be backing off some of the other things. My big concern would be if impeachment gains momentum, he does something that's kind of very negative for markets. And so as you sort of get into the weeds of like central bankers and, you know, it's 
interesting. Carol and I haven't had a chance to talk about this, but you know, I was watching the interview on 60 Minutes last night with Madame Lagarde and sort of her stance. She's obviously going to be a very powerful voice, continue to be a powerful voice in the global uh, central bank conversation and the monetary policy conversation. Do, do the personnel changes, do those sorts of things ultimately play through to how you think uh, things will trade over the next few months? Yeah, I think particularly with Madame Lagarde, is she's really not there to be a central banker. I think Draghi's job was to do the monetary policy. And if anything, if you go back to the last meeting, they basically changed monetary policy without a vote. He probably yeah. didn't have the support. So I think he set the table for her to be a much more political figure. And my expectation is she is going to push very, very hard for a um, shift to fiscal stimulus in Europe. They need it. They probably need it to hold Spain together. France itself probably needs it. So I think you're going to see her use it as a bully pulpit to really push for fiscal stimulus. And I think that's going to be that changing theme, again, which would give that a little bit more growth and higher bond yields. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's funny to think that the tone could change that much, but you're totally right. I mean, even watching that interview last night, I mean, it was very well produced. And they were in, I don't know if you've seen it, Carol, but they were in Normandy at one Mm -hmm. point. They were in her office. They had things in Washington. I mean, this is someone who, Peter, to your exact point, really brings a whole different element to this job, you know, someone who has interacted with President Trump. I mean, that that has come up and clearly a very strong voice, as you say, well beyond monetary policy. Yeah, and that's what's kind of got me excited about potential for growth in Europe, higher yields in Europe. And again, that will push here. I do think it's going to be a little bit of a headwind for stocks as a whole domestically, and particularly what, you know, we call the bond proxy stocks, whether it's the REITs or Mm. utilities. Anything that people bought really in desperation for yield, I think those have become very crowded trades, and we could see some selling pressure there. So what I like doing is selling some of those, and maybe you know, for every you know, $100 of those you sell, buy 10 to $25 of more aggressive stocks, cyclicals, right. some of the beaten up small caps. Because you're still bearish, just quickly to, to sum up, 30, 30 seconds here, you're still bearish on stocks, right? Yeah, I think stocks are going to struggle into year-end. I think the 2020 election is going to weigh on people. So I think you're going to have people sell a little bit of stocks and maybe some bonds, because I believe these you know, 60-40 type funds where people right. use treasuries will get sold off. So I like Europe better than the U.S. right now in stocks. Interesting. All right. Well, great conversation. We knew it would be, and you gave us a whole framework for the day, Peter. We really appreciate it. Peter Cheer is head of macro strategy at Academy Securities. He joined us on the phone from New Canaan, Connecticut. So as we've been talking about Boeing very much in the news again in the crosshairs of regulators for sure about who knew what when and also now in the crosshairs of analysts trying to figure out how to model what happens next. Let's get into it. Julie Johnson is aerospace reporter for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from Chicago. So Julie, synthesize all of this for us, the stock is down. What are investors most concerned about at this moment? I think um, I think <laughs> there are many, many things for Boeing investors to be concerned about right now. It's hard to pick one. But I think the number one question is, what does this spat with the FAA that blew up um, sky high on Friday what does this mean for the MAX coming back into, the ser- in, into service? Now, um, you know, I, some will argue that they're two completely separate um, uh, things and, and there shouldn't, you know, one should not um, affect the other. There shouldn't be any intersection. 
but you know what we don't know are the full set of circumstances around Boeing's decision to release this really explosive set of, of messages to DOJ months ago in February, um, but, but to keep FAA in the dark and just how damaged that has, uh, you know, how damaged its relationship with FAA is. Well, it's interesting as you go through these stories, and you're right, there's a lot going on right now, and I feel like a lot of headlines, uh, Julie, coming out over the last week or so. Um, you know, you've got the analysts, of course, weighing in uh, as a result. But I guess what we need to find out, right, clearly is what did Boeing know? When did they know it? What did the FAA know uh, when they signed off? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And Boeing made, um, I th put out a pretty long statement yesterday that provided some of the context. Um, a little bit of context around the messages. And I think one of the, the issues for Boeing is that the pilot, uh, company pilot, um, you know, sort of at the center of the firestorm, has his own criminal defense attorney and has not been talking to Boeing. So they don't know the full context around those remarks. And um, so it's really, you know, they're, it's possible there could be an innocuous explanation, but on face value, I mean, the comments are really damning. So, so that that's part of it. But Boeing made clear yesterday um, that the changes, you know, to the software that's been linked to two crashes, um, that you know, they said FAA was briefed repeatedly. FAA pilots um, sat sat in the cockpit of flight test aircraft. Um, over, I think, about a five-month period, including and, you know, saw this system in, in action and never raised concern. Well, we don't know, but right. that's the inference, that they were there and they didn't raise concerns. All right, so, Julie, what happens next? Only about 45 seconds left. What are we okay. looking for next? Well, a lot is happening. Boeing's board is meeting right now, and so we are all very, very eager to, to see what comes out of this session. The company's reporting earnings on Wednesday, and that's when we'll get a full picture of the, you know, the bleeding, the hemorrhaging uh, from the 737 MAX crisis. All right, we're going to leave it there. Julie Johnson is aerospace reporter for Bloomberg. She's got a full plate looking after everything that is going on with Boeing. She joined us on the phone from Chicago. Let's get an update on the trade war, all these tensions around the world that are playing through increasingly both corporations and consumers. Sean Donnan is senior trade reporter for Bloomberg. He's back with us, also a contributor to Bloomberg New Economy. He joins us from our 99.1 studio down in the nation's capital. All right, let's get down to brass tacks, Sean, because I saw on Twitter that you were asking for some bourbon recommendations over the weekend. <laughs> and I can only imagine now reading your story that maybe this was considered reporting. What's happening here? Absolutely. So if you want to understand the trade wars, you should grab yourself a glass of single malt scotch right about now, because it's going to cost you 25% more uh, than it would have just a few days ago. That's a lot. It is a lot, especially when you're talking about a $100 bottle for some good single malt scotches or more. Um, so it's an extra $25 on top of that. And 
Why is it going to cost you more? It's going to cost you more because the World Trade Organization a few weeks ago gave the U.S. permission to slap tariffs on $7.5 billion in trade with the EU related to a long-running dispute. When I say long, I mean 15 years long uh, dispute between Boeing and Airbus over uh, subsidies that uh, the EU has given to Airbus. And if I was sitting in Paris right now, I'd tell you uh, from the EU's perspective, subsidies that Washington State and others have given Boeing over the years. There's a another case coming down the track. But uh, the result is that there are new U.S. tariffs that have gone into effect. It's not just scotch. It's French wine, cheese, Spanish olive oil, uh, Irish whiskey from North Northern Ireland, from the U.K. Uh, side of the Irish border, uh, not from the South. In practical terms, that means if you like Bushmills whiskey, you're going to be paying 25% more for it. If you're a Jameson person, you won't because that's made south of the border. It's a complicated world we live in, in the world of trade. It's enough to drive you to drink, but that drink <laughs> is now going to cost you more. Well, and, you know, what's interesting, too, though, you dig into this idea of where governments provide sub- subsidies, right, for an industry. And that is also going to be part or already is part of these trade talks. Globally. Right. So this is so that I have a piece up today, uh, part of our Terms of Trade daily trade newsletter that you can sign up for. The um, making the point that actually this isn't just about scotch. This is about the world of industrial subsidies, which is one of the the prickliest areas of the world of trade. And as I said, there's been this long running fight between the U.S. and EU over Airbus and Boeing. But industrial subsidies have been a big feature or a big subject of discussion in the U.S.-China talks as well. And a few weeks ago, when the Chinese came to town, they were letting people know that this was an area that actually they were no longer prepared to talk about, uh, this whole area of industrial subsidies. And that gets into the kind of the cheap loans, the the cheap electricity, all of the ways that the Chinese government uh, helps its industrial champions uh, go out into the world and compete, which is uh, often the main target uh, for the Trump administration and also others before it when they were talking about unfair trade and uh, and China's unfair competition uh, in the world. President Trump this afternoon uh, at the White House had a cabinet meeting, and he was talking a little bit about the China deal that he's hoping to sign in a few weeks. But that China deal is not going to tackle big issues like industrial subsidies. And so give us a sense what we may see this week uh, in terms of movement on the trade war, Sean. I feel like the last couple weeks have been vigorous, shall we say, in terms of news. What's next? Yeah, so it, it's we're hoping for a fairly quiet week. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're hoping good luck with that. Yeah, good <laughs> luck with that. It's only Monday. Uh, we are expecting uh, Bob Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, to have a phone call with Liu He, the Chinese Vice Premier, at the end of the week. That's uh, more in terms of trying to nail down this deal that the U.S. and China want to sign. Uh, I do have it on good authority that Bob Lighthizer, by the way, is a wine drinker rather than a whiskey drinker. Uh, and he has in the past talked about his preference for California wines over French wines, which may be why he's so comfortable imposing all these tariffs. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's interesting. We kicked off our broadcast talking about uh, headline bingo. 
uh, and just this whole idea of how investors, you know, sometimes are reacting to a certain headline, uh, sometimes not, and that we've certainly seen that play out with trade. Do you anticipate, Sean, that there will be any significant, really significant headlines that you think investors might uh, react to uh, this week, next week? I think one of the features we should be looking for now in the trade wars is a desire by everyone, and including the Trump administration, to try and cool things down a bit. Um, that doesn't mean that we're going to see an end to the trade wars, but it does mean, I think, that uh, people all around, that includes China, that includes the EU, are eager to find a way to hit the pause button and so on. So it may be that we don't, the trade wars don't generate the number of headlines that investors can react to um, in this, at the same rate that they have uh, over the past year or so. But I say all of that uh, with my fingers crossed because really um, all of this can go awry very quickly. Right. Uh, last question for you, Sean. 30 seconds. USMCA, USMCA, as Carol likes to call it. Uh, what's the status there? Is the House going to take this up? Uh, that's the big question. We're waiting for Nancy Pelosi to give the green light uh, for that to go to the floor. Uh, Democrats and uh, Bob Lighthizer have been engaged in the last few weeks in some serious negotiations and some deal on some details. Uh, the clock is really running out on that. Uh, yeah. They need to get that done in, in the next month or so. Yeah, only a and handful of uh, legislative days left, I believe, to even take it up. Some, some pretty naughty issues. One big issue to watch for is what happens with the labor movement, right. which obviously is close to uh, the Democratic leadership. Uh, Richard Trumka at the AFL-CIO remains a skeptic. All right. We're going to leave it there. Sean Donnan, senior trade reporter for Bloomberg. All things trade, also a contributor to Bloomberg New Economy. He joined us from our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. All right, Kara, it's earlier in the week, mm -hmm. but I'm already calling this my favorite story of the week in the magazine. It's so good because it's all about these subscriptions. We talk about them all the time. All you have to do is walk down my street or yours. You see the boxes piling up, and that's exactly part of the inspiration for Tiffany Carey, consumer reporter for Bloomberg. This story, I put my life in a box, then I couldn't get it out. She's here with me in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I love this story. I, I'm guessing it was not that easy ultimately to pull off in the sense that you really went all in on this. Yeah, I took it seriously. You know, we had, we were a family of four. We had to live on subscription alone. So when I forgot to order Band-Aids, that would be an issue. <laughs> wow. All right. So take us all the way back. How did this idea even come to you? There are a lot of these direct-to-consumer companies now that are trying to get people hooked on subscriptions. It's a great model for them. They get your information, then they get to anticipate your needs. They get you signed up and paying a year in advance for product. Um, and it's a way into your data. Uh, and of course, there's a certain appeal for the consumer. You know, could this make my life easier? So I decided to try to find out. All right. So tell us, give us some of the high points and the low points. The high points were, you know, opening a box of flowers and then they're sitting there. It's something you wouldn't normally do. Um, having meals planned for you, you get to sort of relinquish grocery shopping and planning. And then the low points were, oh my gosh, there are no Band-Aids and my kid scraped his knee. Right. <laughs> well, and what's interesting is what you reveal through the course of this story is 
basically, you know, we joke like, oh, there's an app for that. There really is a subscription for just about everything. And as you, you know, you cite Maslow's hierarchy of needs early on in the story, the things that you need, but also the things that people convince you you need in a lot of ways, right? Oh, yeah. There are a lot more subscriptions out there for things you don't need. I think there are a lot of makeup subscriptions right now for women with a lot of things like primer and, you know, extra special color things that yeah. people don't really need. Uh, I think th it's interesting what there are not subscriptions for, too. Like I think about, oh, wouldn't it be great to get monthly tickets to a concert I liked? Or yeah. All right. Well, may, maybe you're going to start something. Uh, you're going to be inspired by all this. Well, and it's interesting. Um, you know, tell us like when it first started happening and you kind of went all in on your life in a box. And like you said, I guess so initially it was kind of fun, right? Yeah. I mean, it's great to be surprised as long as it's working. And so what didn't work? Where, where was the breakdown that you found? Was it on the fulfillment or was it in terms of the invasiveness, I guess, or all of the above? I think a little bit of, of both. You know, I think it's, it's hard to plan your life, right? We all have a lot of inconsistencies and surprises in our life. So when you're on a sort of track and you're, you know, it's hard. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's funny, too, like you talk about, you know, some of the food that you got delivered, right? And all of a sudden you have, it, it's like going to the big box, you know, Costco's and the BJ's of this world. And all of a sudden you come home with a case of something. And you're like, wow, what do I do with this? That's exactly right. Lots of leftovers. How right. expensive was it, though, like ultimately? Because, you know, I am, I just think about even like our dog food, right? You know, initially Amazon sent you these little plastic things and it's a button. And when you ran out, you just pushed it. And then all of a sudden it showed up at your door. But you can also, you know, on Amazon, you know, you can set things for regular, you know, monthly deliveries or what have you. So they refill. And it sounds really convenient. But, you know, you kind of set it and then you just kind of let it go. Yeah, I think there were very few cost savings here. Even something like Kidbox, which is the clothing mm -hmm. for kids through Walmart, you know, they say that you are getting a lot off the list price. But of course, if you're a regular shopper, you're probably going to go and look for those things right. on sale anyways. You know, one of the anecdotes you tell in the story goes to the point you made earlier, this idea of, yes, we all have things sort of planned out, but there's a lot of serendipity that comes and you never know sort of necessarily what you're in the mood for. And so, you know, running to the store to get something isn't that big of an inconvenience. And you tell this great story uh, about your husband, like eating a bowl of Lucky Charms. I know your husband, he's a great guy. Um, and you say, you, we didn't subscribe to that. And then he says something like, why are there 96 eggs in the refrigerator? I mean, those are the sorts of things where this does start to break down a little bit, I would think. Exactly. We had way too much of some things. And then there are the things that, you know, people all have their bad, ha bad food habits or the things they don't plan for. Do you well, do a lot of subscriptions, Carol? Um, I actually don't do a lot of subscriptions. Um, I don't even like, you know, those ongoing magazine subscriptions that you sign up at one point and it sounds like a good idea. Or yeah. it's, it's a fundraiser, but then you're, like, you're getting the magazine and then you try to stop it. You can't find the number. Right. And it's just crazy. Right. What I do find interesting, too, you did, though, do tried like a closed subscriptions, which I feel like everybody is all in on. Just got about 30 seconds. It didn't go exactly the way you thought it was going to go, did it? No, I mean, I think these style planners, they get better over time, but yeah. they didn't have a chance to go there. Maybe that's the next frontier. They made yeah. you into a hippie, right? Yeah. Well, it's going to be your, your follow-up story. It's a great piece. We're going to tweet it out. Tiffany Carey, I put my life in a box, then I couldn't Wait, get it out. Did yes. you unsubscribe from everything? 
Yes, and that's what took the most time. Yeah, she I said the unsubscribing the took the most model. time. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, it's just like your magazines, Carol. I mean, it does. Once they get you in, you're stuck. They've got you. All right. It's a great story. As I said, we'll uh, put it out there. It's in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Hit. Hank Smith, he's co-chief investment officer at Haverbrook Trust. I said to Jason, I think I have the hiccups. Confirmed. You have the hiccups. <laughs> he's on the phone from Radnor, Pennsylvania. So, Hank, I'm going to bring you in right away. Um, tell us a little bit about the markets right now. <laughs> sure. Um, Carol, it is all about trade. And it has been for the better part of the past six months. You know, if you look at the two swift near corrections we had in early May when the China trade deal broke down, and then to begin August, another swift turndown as Trump unexpectedly announced additional tariffs on China. Uh, and then we kind of get over it, and the market rallies. The rally today is off of news, positive news from the uh, vice premier in China over the weekend that uh, a phase one deal is looking like it's moving forward. So um, our belief is when if we can get trade agreements, particularly with China, but also there are other ones lurking out there with India and, and new NAFTA, that's what I call it, signed, um, I think this market goes higher on the expectation that business confidence will pick up and we'll see a reacceleration of GDP growth in 2020. Well, and Hank, I want to ask you about this because it, it's something, obviously, we've been talking about trade ad nauseum now for months. And, and just as you say, the market does feel like it is moving very specifically on headlines. We were talking with Peter Shear earlier in the show about headline bingo, and that is a great way to look at this market right now. But I do want to ask you whether we are starting to get a little bit more sophisticated as investors in terms of understanding the mechanics of what a deal would look like playing through either certain sectors or certain equities or some way that we start to get a feel for what this actually looks like because the market sort of going back and forth and getting jerked this way and that is is one thing but really being able to invest against it is another how do you square that yeah, and you know, some of the tariffs have been in place for over a year and companies have have made the adjustments and so you kind of lap those initial negative effects. But that being said, look, this slowdown both globally and in the US is self-induced and it, it relates directly to business confidence rolling over due to the uncertainty. Mm. So I don't think it's the details really matter all that much. I'm certain that regardless of the details, our president will call it a beautiful deal and the greatest deal ever. But Maybe perfect. Fact, he li- he likes the word perfect as well. <laughs> I forgot that one, yes. <laughs> uh, and, but uh, what, what happens regardless of the details is that cloud of uncertainty begins to lift and 
uh, confidence picks up. Uh, obviously, the better the deal, you know, the greater the confidence. But I think it, removing that uncertainty is what's most important to um, market participants and also uh, the economy. So, Hank, it sounds like it doesn't even matter if it's a great deal, just something done, written on paper, signed, sealed, and delivered by both sides. I think it's as simple as that, and the issue moves off of the front page, figuratively speaking, Mm -hmm. and does not come back throughout 2020, because regardless if you're a Republican or a Democrat, first-term president, the most important determinant to getting reelected is the economy, and probably doubly so for this president. And so as you think about what the Federal Reserve might do, we're coming up on another meeting 10 days out or so, what's their stance figuring in, feathering in, if you will, trade tensions, maybe a little bit of trade optimism? How does that play through to your thinking, to their thinking in your estimation? Yeah, I believe uh, the market has it right now at about a 50-50 for a uh, October rate cut. Uh, We think we're going to get a rate cut, and then there's going to be a pause. Mm. We'll have had three cuts. Uh, Hopefully that cut will uh, take the inversion away, at least from the Fed funds rate to the 10-year. And uh, then with a little bit of uh, more economic growth in 2020, you'll get even further steepening of the curve. But, you know, from the standpoint of the economy, you really have the potential of a one-two punch. Uh, Three rate cuts, uh, a Fed, they're not calling it quantitative easing, but it sure looks that way. And if you can get some trade deals done, uh, I, I think it really could help this Uh, economy accelerate back to something closer to 3% in 2020. You are pretty um, optimistic here. Uh, We are, and uh, it's paid uh, paid off for the past 10 years. And and these corrections, they feel feel pretty badly. I mean, think about last December, think about May, think about uh, August. Uh, But you need to take advantage of them immediately because the reversals have been so quick and have taken market participants by surprise. I mean, this is just back to, you know, Jason, you and I have talked about it a lot. I'm sure, Hank, you've had conversations around, uh, you know, your office about this. It's all about yield comparisons, right? And if you can't get anything from the fixed income market, you're going to look at the equity markets, particularly stocks that have dividends. I mean, if that dividend yield is better than what you're seeing in fixed income, and certainly compared to U.S. Treasuries, you're going to go there. Absolutely. You have a generational opportunity. You've got to go back to the mid-1950s when the last time the stock market yielded more than the bond market uh, with the S&P 500 dividend yield at 2% and the 10-year at 1.7. You have 60% plus of participants in the S&P 500 with uh, greater than uh, 10-year Treasury dividend yields. Um, And with interest rates low, with inflation benign, we continue to be in a TINA environment. There is no alternative. And that's why we think this earnings reporting season isn't as important as some previous ones, just given the nature of the uh, markets with low yields and low inflation. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. As always, Hank Smith, Co-Chief Investment Officer of Haverford Trust. He joined us on the phone from Radnor. 
PA. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.